title of this message today is Approved by God in the Last Days. I believe that we are living in the last of the last days. Perhaps the final minutes of the last hour. I believe this based on Scripture and what it says will define the last days. First, we know we are late into the last days because Peter declares, but the end of all things is at hand, or it's drawn near. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And Hebrews tells us that God has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. If Peter and the author of Hebrews said we were in the last days then, I think it's safe to say that we are farther and farther into the last days now. Some are sleeping on the brink of Christ's return. Listen to this, Romans 13.11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time or past time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Our salvation is closer than when we first believed. Friend, the time is short. Jesus is coming soon. He is nearer to hearing His Father's command to reap the harvest than at any other time in history. This truth should revive the hearts of the bride, create anticipation in our hearts, and it should strike fear into the heart of every rebel. Every unbeliever who says, I'm just going to live my own life and go my own way. But the rebel is not afraid. He scoffs at the end of the age and the coming of Christ and His kingdom. I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was speaking with a youth pastor. I just met him at my youngest son's football game. I heard him behind me. I was the announcer for the game, which I'm not very good at, but I was announcing the football game, and I heard them behind me talking about Bible versions and church stuff, and I thought, oh, these must must be believers. So at halftime, I turned around and just started a conversation with them. One was a youth pastor coming to see his friend's son play, and we just started talking along these lines of this sermon, and he said, you know, it's interesting. Just recently, I shared the gospel with a young man And I shared it very clearly, and he understood it. He understood it perfectly. He had great understanding of the gospel. But this is what the man said, the young man. He said, I understand the gospel, but I don't want to give up my sin to follow Christ. He had no fear of rejecting eternal life. No fear of rushing headlong into hell. Today, just like in the apostles, there are many who mock the warning that Christ is coming soon. 2 Peter 3 and 4. Knowing this first that there will come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Notice the character of these scoffers. What does it say? Walking after their own lusts, their own sinful passions, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? This is why they scoff rather than tremble. They must silence their own conscience. They, they laugh it off. If they're going to continue in sin, they can't have their conscience continually bothering them, accusing them, warning them, telling them to turn from their sin. So they have to scoff. They have to put it off. They have to ignore it. Listen to what they say. They looked at their own ancient history and their time. They looked at the prophets and they said, oh, the prophets, they spoke and died and everything keeps humming along. There was no end of the world in fiery judgment. What's frightening is that the mockers have entered the church. When a person points out to another believer, I've heard this, that Jesus said the sign of His coming would be what? One of the signs would be that iniquity or lawlessness would increase or multiply and thus many hearts would grow cold. Some in the church say, ah, but things were bad back then. They were just as bad. I mean, look at ancient Rome. Things were bad back then. They've always been bad. I want in this message to show you a few signs that I see clearly coming to pass that convince me that His return is very close. 
I'm not going to go into all the signs of his coming, the wars, the famines, the pestilences, the earthquakes, the false prophets, but I'm going to point out a few of these things to show you what I see are signs that his return is very near. And I also want to encourage you to stand in this difficult hour and to share with you some practical ways to do that. Daniel prophesied that there would be four great earthly kingdoms that would rise. They would reign and they would pass away. Three of these kingdoms have already come and gone, as Daniel said. Their fall was so complete that looking for their traces would be like finding the chaff that the wind had blown away. You know, that's that, that little leftover piece of the kernel that when the wind comes, it just blows it away. It becomes dust. The fourth last day's kingdom is believed to be a revived Roman Empire by most Bible scholars. And the Bible says that fourth kingdom will be destroyed by a fifth kingdom that will never be destroyed. Look with me if you have your Bible at Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. Daniel is speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar after his dream, and he says this, You saw till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel was giving the interpretation to the king Nebuchadnezzar who had this dream of this great image with the head of gold and the arms and the breast of silver and the torso of bronze and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And each one of these metal types represented a kingdom. Babylon was the head of gold. He was the greatest kingdom that would reign, the greatest earthly kingdom that would reign. And then it was the Medes and the Persians, and then Greece. And then finally, the feet with the iron mixed with clay speaks of Rome, and scholars believe also of a revived Roman Empire at the end of time. And Daniel said, you saw, king, a stone was cut out without hands. And that stone struck the feet of this image, and it broke into pieces and was crushed into powder and became like the chaff of the summer day. And it says that stone that smote the image became a great mountain. It grew from a rock into a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. What was Daniel talking about besides these earthly kingdoms? Babylon, Persia, Greece, and the revived Rome. What was that stone that grew and became a great mountain that filled the whole earth? I believe that that stone cut without hands that struck the image is Christ. He's the stone alone which has the Father's authority and power to cast down kingdoms. Yet I believe there's a dual meaning here to the stone which becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. The great mountain refers to Christ's kingdom. Look at verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel was prophesying about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ that would grow throughout the whole earth and it would be a kingdom that outlasts all the earthly kingdoms and all the earthly kings. All these earthly kingdoms will reign for a season and they will fall and be destroyed. They'll be destroyed by Christ, but his kingdom will last forever. Think about that. Listen, we are living in the gospel age of grace. The kingdom of Christ is established in the hearts of men. It's not a political kingdom. We are not a political earthly force. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. People are brought into the kingdom of God, not by the edge of a sword, but by hearing 
and believing the Word of God. The kingdom of God is advancing and increasing, growing like that mountain in the hearts of people all over the world. But the saints are not overthrowing governments or kingdoms. That is for the king to do, not us. Now we are living in the age when the kingdom is within, by the rule of God's Spirit and willing servants. But the time is coming when Christ will return. He will overthrow all earthly kingdoms and reign as the only rightful king. All that remains of the kingdoms of this earth will be nothing. If you look for traces of Babylon, as great as that kingdom was, or of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks, there's only a few artifacts remaining of these incredible kingdoms. All the buildings were destroyed. All the cities were destroyed and built upon by other kingdoms. And that's what's going to happen to our present kingdoms, guys. So many people, we put so much stock in, in the present, in the now. Being important in this life, being important in this world, all that comes to nothing. All that remains is the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ right now is hidden. It's hidden inside people, right? It's not an outward kingdom. But when Christ returns to earth, he will set up his kingdom on earth and the government will be on his shoulders. He will reign on earth for a thousand years. His kingdom is coming. That's what we should be living for as believers. All that will matter in the day when Christ comes and for the rest of eternity is whether or not you are in the kingdom. And if you are in, what did you do while you were here to advance his kingdom? How did you serve Christ? What did you do to advance the gospel? That's all that will matter. Everything else that's important in this life today, our businesses, our jobs, the things that are being built, the governments, that the things are doing, all the projects, will mean nothing. All that will matter is Christ's kingdom and what was done to advance it. Today, all of hell is raging to keep people out of that eternal kingdom and to lead them into the utter ruin of the earthly kingdom. Satan is deceiving multitudes to live for their own desires and blinding them that coming judgment is on its way. Someone might say, what if you're wrong, Aaron? What if Christ doesn't return for 100 years or for 500 years? I will have lived in preparation for my master's return and told others to do the same. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. So what does the Scripture say are some of the clear signs of Christ's return and the end of these earthly kingdoms? Listen, Daniel 12.4. Daniel was told that the time of the end would be marked by many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. This is an interesting verse. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Could many running to and fro refer to the time of international travel that only in the last hundred years or so since the Wright brothers invented the plane, only in about a hundred years have we had international travel. And people are running to and fro all over the world. The world has never seen this before. This is new to the last hundred years. Listen, it says, and knowledge shall be increased. Has knowledge ever increased at the rate of the last century and especially the last 50 years? Never before. Never before. The relationship, listen to this. This is something that I wrote down about Moore's Law. It says the relationship, speaking about computer chips, the relationship of the number of transistors which fit into a microprocessor was famously related to Moore's Law, who, was, who had a part in starting Intel, which was the observation, Moore's Law was the observation that the number of transistors which fit into a microprocessor would double every two years. In 1971, a microprocessor chip contained around 2,000 transistors. In 2017, the number grew to approximately 19 billion transistors. Listen, today's smartphones are more than 1,000 times more powerful 
than all the computers that sent the Apollo 11 to the moon. Think about that. All these massive computers, all the supercomputers, even into the 70s. My little iPhone here, and you've got them too, or you've got your Samsung phone. This has more power than all of the supercomputers. Faster, can do more processing work than these huge computers that took up rooms that cost millions of dollars when they were purchased. This has more processing power. If you look at a graph, if you have time after church, look at the graph of how fast technology is increasing. It's unbelievable. Daniel said, knowledge shall be increased. It will multiply. Jesus said something else would increase or multiply in the last days. Iniquity. Matthew 24, 12. And because iniquity shall abound, that means multiply or be increased, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. The word iniquity is anomia, and it it comes from the word that means without law. A is a negative participle, and it changes the word after it to mean basically the opposite. Nomia is law. It means without law, lawlessness. It implies a rebellion or scoffing at God's authority and his person. Jesus was saying the last days will be marked by a multiplication and increase of lawlessness, and many who once loved me will love me no more. You say, Aaron, how, why are you saying that's about that's to believers? Listen, the word Jesus uses in Matthew 24, 12, when it says the love of many shall wax cold is not the word for brotherly love, phileo. It's the word for God's love, agape. It says the agape of many shall wax cold. Could there be a correlation, a relationship between the abounding of knowledge, the increase of knowledge that Daniel prophesied about that we see in our age, technology advancing everywhere? Could there be a correlation between this abounding multiplication of knowledge and the multiplication or abounding of iniquity? Most definitely, yes. Think of the abundance of social apps like Tinder. The swipe of a finger, you're this close to fornication. Consider the instant access to worlds of filth on a device that fits in your pocket. Never before has access to wickedness abounded like it does today. Never before. I believe Jesus was referring in Matthew 24 to the same falling away or apostasy that Paul speaks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Listen. Speaking of Christ's return, Paul said, Let no man deceive you by any means. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, which refers to the Antichrist. Paul says someone had started a rumor in the church of Thessalonians that Christ's return had already come. Paul said, No. Guys, Christ hasn't returned yet. And know this that the day of Christ will not come except first there comes a great falling away. That word falling away in the Greek is apostasy. It's the same word we have in English for apostasy. Falling away, it means to fall away, to forsake a defection from truth. Listen, you can't fall away from something you're not in. Can you? This falling away describes those who once held to the truth, now turning away from it. In conjunction with the revealing of the man of sin, the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, John said in 1 John, there are many Antichrists now in the world. But what Paul is referring to here is the final Antichrist who will come to power during the Great Tribulation. Listen, at the same time, there's going to be many people saying, you know what, I'm not following Jesus anymore. Recently, there have been a number of high-profile Christians in the media who say they are no longer following Jesus. Authors, Christian authors, Christian leaders, Christian musicians. Some said previously that they were saved from a sinful lifestyle 
And some of them worked in ministry to help others out of their lifestyle through Jesus Christ. But now, they're returning to the life that they were cleansed from. Some of them are apologizing to the world for the scriptural position they once stood firm on. They're saying, I'm sorry for offending you, world. I'm not following Jesus anymore. No, I've been enlightened. And I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. This should break our hearts. This breaks God's heart. But he saw it coming. You don't believe a Christian can fall away? Look around you. Look around you. Look at God's Word. The New Testament warns us that in the last days, some will depart from the faith, listening to seducing spirits. It warns some have denied the faith. Some have been seduced from the faith, suffered a shipwrecked faith, an overthrown faith. Some have departed from the living God and forsaken the right way. These are all scriptures, my friend. Peter, speaking of false teachers, said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Those are some of the strongest words, I think, in all of the New Testament. Peter says it would have been better for those who have known Christ, have been cleansed through a knowledge of Him, who've been washed from their filthiness, and then decide, you know what, I don't want it anymore. I'm going back to the world. I'm denying Him. He wasn't what I thought He was. And some have mocked him and said, called God a bloodthirsty God and ridiculed the cross. It says it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned their back on it. How could this happen to people who experienced the undeserved grace of God, who've been washed from their filthiness? It defies the logic of grace. Grace compels us to love and obedience to the one who paid with his own stripes for our healing. He was wounded for our transgressions. Proverbs 2.13 speaks of men who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. That means they walked. They were on the paths of uprightness. They walked away from it. My heart is broken when I hear of pastors of megachurches committing suicide. How is this happening? I thought the joy of the Lord was our strength. I thought Christ broke every chain. He does. And He will. These men missed their sin. Listen. And they loved it more than Christ. They saw the world out there parting and they said, I I really miss that. And they went back to it like a dog returns to its vomit. Esau sold his birthright for what? One morsel of meat. One meal. He sold all the blessings of God in his life. To have God direct him, to have God speak to him, to have God guide him, to know the love of God which passes knowledge. He sold it all because he was hungry. How he despised and looked down on the blessing, the birthright of God. Demas abandoned Paul when Paul was doing gospel work and it says, he left me, Paul said, having loved what? This present world. This present world. That Daniel said, all these great kingdoms, all their great wealth and power and wisdom is coming to nothing. Christ is going to strike it and it's going to be turned to the ashes, to the chaff of the summer. It's going to be blown away. 
You'll be hard-pressed to find even a residue of it. But Demas said, no, I love that. I want that more than Christ. You know, there's a difference between him and another gospel worker who walked away. You remember John Mark? Paul and Barnabas were in their early missionary journeys, and it says that John Mark left them. Paul was upset about this. He was upset. In fact, it caused him and Barnabas to have a split on their next missionary journey, right? Paul said, no, I don't want to take John Mark. Barnabas said, let's give him another chance. And later in Paul's ministry, years later, he said in one of the books, one of the epistles, he said, and bring John Mark with you because he's become useful to me. See, John Mark had a stumbling. Maybe Paul and Barnabas, they were just too, too intense for him. Maybe the pace was just too intense. I don't know what it was. Maybe he had some doubts. Maybe he had some things he had to work through. But he didn't forsake Christ. Do you understand that? He went back, he came to the Lord, and the Lord strengthened him and worked in him and changed him. And John Mark became useful for the gospel. Demas, it doesn't say that happened. Demas sold Christ out for the love of this world. Listen, there is a falling away with the increase of lawlessness. We see it today. But friends, there is a mountain that is growing and filling the whole earth. God's kingdom will advance and not retreat. There is an army of soldiers of grace that will not turn away even at the loss of their own lives. They have been won by redeeming love. They are kept by grace and they are marching in the spirit against the gates of hell. We see the signs of the end of this age being fulfilled before our eyes, but do not fear. Our God is greater than the flood of iniquity and the man of sin. He will keep those that love Him in the darkest hours. He will keep them. I don't care if you are a new Christian and you have a very infantile faith. If you will look to Jesus Christ to keep you, He will keep you. It doesn't matter if the man of sin himself is standing and opposing you. If Satan, the Antichrist, are all opposing you, Jesus is greater. He has promised us victory if we will trust Him if we will hold fast to that faith which He has given us. I said in the beginning of this message that I would give you some practical steps to stand in this evil hour before Christ returns. And I will give you three. Number one, receive the love of God's Word. I have the privilege to to preach here on occasion. You hear Scott preach great messages. Juan Carlos is preaching here. Maybe you hear the Gospel. You hear the Word of God on radio. That's great. That's good. Hear it, listen to it, receive it. But my friend, you get into this book for yourself. You study to show yourself approved. A worker that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Listen, if all you stand on is what you hear from other preachers, when the great deception comes, that Jesus said, even if it were possible, the elect could be deceived. When the great deception comes, and you're just, you're just impressed and convinced by men, You'll fall for it, my friend. You have got to know this Christ, this book for yourself. Then you'll know the truth. Then you'll be able to see the distinction when the one man says, I'm a man of God, and he's saying something, and the other says, I'm a man of God, and he's saying something else, and it's confusing, and the Antichrist is performing miracles, miracles, healings. You need to know this book. It will preserve you. It will keep you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 12 says that the reason that people apostatized was they received not the love of the truth 
They believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They're like Esau. They exchanged the blessing of God for one morsel, one ice cream cone, one dessert, one sexual pleasure, one thing to say, God, i got to have this. I'm going to turn away from you. They did not receive the love of the truth. Thus, they did not believe the truth. And they had pleasure in unrighteousness. It just simplified. They loved their sin more than God's word. They loved their sin more than God's truth. They refused to love and believe God's word and instead loved their sin. Listen, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word study in the Greek is the word spudazo. It means to labor, to endeavor, to give diligence, to study. In street terms, it means put your shoulder into it. You know, I'm a contractor and I have employees and I work with guys and we know how to work and my guys know how to work. But if I had a guy show up on the job and I said, I need you to shovel this ditch and he puts his foot on the shovel, and yeah, yeah, they say the dirt is kind of hard. Yeah, I don't know. I say, man, put your strength into it. We're here to work. We're here to labor to get something done. The word says, by all labor there is increase. Listen, don't just kind of lackadaisically, oh, you know, I read the Bible once this week and I, you know, I read it for 15 minutes. It was good. My friend, get into this book. It is your lifeline. It's everything for you and for me. Look at what it says. Study to show yourself approved. The title of my message is approved by God in the last days. That word approved is the Greek word dokimos. Dokimos was a word that was used to describe coinage in the early, uh, in early uh, Greek, Greek cities. Listen to this in the history. In the ancient world, there was no banking system as we know it today, no paper money. All money was made from metal. It was heated until liquid poured into molds and allowed to cool. When the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the uneven edges. The coins were comparatively soft, and of course, many people shaved them closely. Well, they were making the coins smaller so they could have more metal. They were, they were cheating. But some money changers were men of integrity. In one century, more than 80 laws were passed in Athens to stop the practice of whittling down the coins then in circulation. 80 laws. But some money changers were men of integrity who would accept no counterfeit money. They were men of honor who put only genuine, full-weight money into circulation. Such men were called dokimas, approved. And this word is used here for the Christian as he is to be seen by the world. That was by Donald Barnhouse. Dokimas. God's will for us in Christ is not only to be saved, but to be dokimas. To be approved unto God, a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed. Hallelujah. Do you know the, the opposite of dokimas? It's adakimas. The A is in front of it. And that's where we get our word for reprobate. It means rejected silver. It means rejected by God. Talks about in Romans, he gave them over to a reprobate mind because they didn't like to keep God in their knowledge. They didn't, they didn't want this word of God convicting them. Friends, God has called us to be dakimas, to be approved of God, to stand the test in these last days. Let me tell you something. His spirit and his grace are just as great as they have ever been in the early church. And He is able to keep us and to preserve us. God is not taken off balance because of the, the, the power of lawlessness that's coming, nor the man of sin. He is able to preserve us. Number two, so the first one, receive the word 
receive the love of God's word, read it, study it, believe it, and obey it through the spirit. Number two, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. That's what Peter said, 1 Peter 2.11. He said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. They war against your soul. Does anybody in here have fleshly lusts that war against their soul? Every single person in here should have their hand up. Hand up. I have fleshly lusts that war against my soul. How often? Once a month? Every single day. Every hour it seems sometimes. They war against my soul. God's word says that we are in a battle. A spiritual battle. But he has given us everything that we need. He's given us the armor of God. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. To be victorious. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. I want to just, this isn't in my sermon, but I want to just give you this practical note. Scripture says, taking every thought captive to make it obedient unto Christ. Do anybody, any of you know that verse? How many of you memorized it? That should be in the memory of every believer in this place. Taking every thought captive to make it obedient unto Christ. What does that mean? It means that when a thought pops in your head that is not of God, that's of your flesh, or it's of the enemy, you are to take it captive to obedience of Christ to say, no, that thought is not of God. And in the name of Jesus and by the victory of his cross, I am rejecting that thought. You can put it in your own words if you like. But you're taking every thought captive because, friends, the battle is in your mind. If you let every thought that comes into your mind just stay there and grow, you will walk in sin. But if you take every thought captive, you are in the path of victory. You're letting the word of God renew your mind, renew your thinking. Amen? Abstain. That's what Peter said. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your souls. They're going to come at you. And in this day and age, you don't have to go very far. You can be driving home and there's a billboard. Something is, is, is trying to get your fleshly lust to come back to life. Right? We're surrounded by it. Listen, don't be among those who give up their fight against sin and walk away from Christ. Peter showed the path of victory is to arm yourselves with a mind or an attitude ready to suffer for his cause. Not living any longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's First Peter 4, 1 and 2, my paraphrase. He said, arm yourself with a mind that you're going to suffer. Guess what, guys? This Christian life is not a rose petal garden. It, there is some difficulty in it. There is some trial in it. There's persecution in it. There's hardship in it. Paul told Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There's going to be some suffering. Prepare your mind to suffer for the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ suffered everything for us. Prepare yourselves. Have an attitude. Not welcoming, not looking for suffering, but ready to suffer. Not living for your lusts anymore, but for what? The will of God. If you commit yourself to the will of God, you know what? When that person cuts you off, it's not so much of a big deal. When you lose finances or, or difficulty comes or health goes bad, you don't say, that's it, God. I thought you were going to bless me. I quit. I'm walking away. You say, God, help me to get through this by your strength. I'm praying for healing. I'm praying for help. I'm looking to you. If we are living for the will of God, turning back is not an option. You and I are soldiers in an internal war, but Christ has won the victory for us. We have this promise, Romans 6, 6. Our old man, that means that sinful man, is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed or, or is destroyed. That from now on we should not serve sin. Friends, grace has made us free through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He has won. And we find our own personal victory as we by faith receive his victory at Calvary. The Bible says, I am dead, I am crucified with Christ. So when that lust rises up, I say, no, 
lust, Jesus Christ has won the victory. He's won the victory. I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loves me. Number three, and I'll close with this. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ until death or until Jesus returns. Hold fast your faith in Christ. Who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is not complicated. Your faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Hebrews 10, 35-39 Cast not away therefore your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. That's saying there's a great reward for your faith in God. For you have need of patience or endurance that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while he that shall come will come, and he will not tarry. Listen, it's a little while. The scoffer says it's a long time. God says it's a little while. Jesus is coming. Now the just or the righteous shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, that means draw back from that faith, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto destruction, but of those that believe to the saving of the soul. 1 Peter 1.5 says, You are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God says, I will keep you by my power, by my upholding hand, but you must believe me. Continue to believe him. Continue to believe that gospel you first believed. Don't be like those who say, you know what, the world looks pretty good and I'm tired of fighting my passions. That's it. I'm going back to the world and I'm saying goodbye to Jesus. Don't do that. Follow him. Hold fast to your faith. There's a great reward waiting for you. Final verse, Revelation eleven fifteen. Remember that vision that Daniel had, that stone being cut without hands. That's the Father's hands. Jesus is that stone and smashing all those other kingdoms and bringing in his kingdom. And the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's the kingdom I want to be living for. That's the kingdom we should be fixing our eyes on. Everything else in this life, in this kingdom, is peripheral. It's just temporary. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for your truth, God. God, I pray that your people would be longing for your return, anticipating your return, prepared as a bride waiting for the bridegroom. Father, I thank you that we cannot, in our own strength, keep ourselves. Lord, the devil is too strong. The flesh and the world are too strong. But I thank you that this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith in you, Jesus. Lord, you are there to protect us. You're there to preserve us, and you will. God, help us in these evil days to study, to dig into your word, to know you for ourselves so that we are dakimas, so that we are approved, so that we can rightly divide the word of truth and stand in this dark, evil hour. God, we praise you for your grace and we know that it's only by grace that we stand. 
It's only by grace that we'll be kept. But Lord, help us to do what you've commanded us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.